0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar, and this is going to be episode one hundred and forty-three of the Informed Catholic. Episode one hundred and forty-three. So, um, if you like what I do and you think I'm doing a good job, please subscribe and share. It'll be a great help. So, before we begin, let's start reading a prayer uh, before before Holy Scripture. Before we start studying Holy Scripture. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, you instructed the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by the same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and ever rejoice in his consolation. We ask this through Christ our our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Mary, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. And St. Joseph, guardian of the Holy Family and guardian of the Church, pray for us. St. Jerome, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. And St. Peter the Apostle, pray for us. And St. Mark the Evangelist, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. All right, so... um. I started an introduction to um, studying the scriptures. And I started with a little bit of what the tools that the catechism gives us. And um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll go through a, a quick recap. We have one we have to pay attention to is the unity of all Scripture. We have to remember that there is a coherence, a a complete connection. That even though every book was written in different times of the history of faith, of a revelation, and with different personalities, different. Um, situations, political, social, economic. These are things we have to, we have to consider. Uh, some Sometimes there are some people that they don't want to think about that. They don't, they don't like worrying about these kind of things. They, they feel it gets in the way of the faith and they're wrong. You got to consider the situation. Okay. You know, for a fact that Jesus came, the word of God, the logos, the divine word, the um, the incarnation of the of the second person of the Trinity happened during the time of the Roman Empire, and you and we are all obviously aware of the situation of the Roman Empire. We know Moses was born in Egypt, so you're aware of the situation of that. So you got to take consideration all the other scriptures, all the other prophets. Okay, Joshua came to us right after uh, the death of Moses. Uh, The judges came right after Joshua, when the Israelites were in the land, we know the mess. We know the situation of Samson. Um, We know the situation of David. So you gotta take consideration of the prophets and the revelation, all the entire uh, Bible, written in different times, different conditions, different situations. So there's a coherence, even though they're written and there, there's vast time between them. We have to take consideration of that. All right. So, um, we have all the other, all these other parts, and we also have the tradition of the church, the church gives us tools of how to interpret them from the church fathers. And we also have to take a consideration of, like I said, the unity. Of the scriptures okay there's a coherence and there's also a unity we have coherence we have tradition and we have unity after that we got the historical sense which goes along with the coherence uh and the tradition and everything that the time and place the scripture was written we also have to consider the allegorical uh such as the style of scripture the uh, the poetry, the type of um, literary genre, like what what was uh, the style, why it was written that way. We also have the um, this kind of of falls into the spiritual sense a little bit, Um, but let's say we also have the uh, the spirit the the historical sense, literal historical. We have the allegorical. And then we have also, um, something called the anagogical. I'm trying to keep it simple. That is the final destiny that the scripture is pointing to. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the other details later on, but these are things that we have to consider. Um, these tools will help us on each passage, how to read it. Okay. Like, um, for example. We, the The Gospel of St. Mark, which we're going to study, the Gospel of St. Mark is really the Gospel of St. Peter. Mark the Evangelist was Simon Peter's companion. He was his secretary, you could say, his protege. And the preaching and writing in St. Mark is based on St. Peter's preaching, teaching. And ministry, his style of ministry, that is a historical fact. Never mind what we're not going to look at the modernists right now, what they what they say and what they try to debunk, but church tradition. Uh, everyone, all the early church fathers, all agree that Saint Mark's preaching, Saint Mark's gospel, is based on the preaching, teaching, and ministry of St. Peter the Apostle if there's an eyewitness account to it it's based on who else the Apostle Peter Simon Peter so this is something we have to take consideration when was it written I don't think you can exactly put an exact pinpoint because it depends how long we could say probably from around 55 AD, straight to 63 AD, no, no later than 67 AD. We got, you know, you got to consider it that Mark probably obviously put it, started putting together before his martyrdom, he went to Egypt and helped found the church of Egypt, which is now the Coptic church in Alexandria. And obviously, he would have taken all, you know, a lot of the church fathers say that he basically uh, took the preaching and teaching of, of St. Peter and tried to form it, compose it into a, a gospel. And he did. He successfully did. Most likely, he used some of his own artistic um, editing as any piece of literature needs. This is something we shouldn't be afraid of. We have to realize that he had to formulate it because the Christian community, most likely after Peter's death under Nero, St. Peter and and St. Paul were martyred under the, uh, the crazed emperor Nero who started blaming the Christians for the, uh, he used them as a scapegoat for the fires of Rome in order to save himself from the um, anger of the populace, the people. So Mark most likely had everything written down in parchments as any secretary has to do. And then once his um, his rabbi, his, his teacher died, he then formed it, obviously. It is obvious the apostle must have been aware of it. The exact, um, narration of that is not necessary because that's not the important thing the important result is, is the result that we have a gospel. And and we know that Simon Peter came from a literary culture, not that, uh, people were literate widely, but reading and writing, obviously studying the prophets was something important. And Peter learned from his rabbi, from his Christ, from his Savior, how to preach and teach, and Jesus himself knew how to read. So this part we, we kind of got we kind of uh, did the foundation on. Now the purpose of modernism, the purpose of modernism itself, is not to believe, in divinity, scholars um, strip the gospel of divinity. Skip the—they uh, strip the gospels of the presence of God. They they strip the the gospels of anything holy. They create a historical Jesus, uh, a historical Jesus of their own making, a historical Jesus of. Of their necessity. Uh, the the idea behind it, he's not holy. He's not God. Pretty much an Arian Jesus, a human Jesus, uh, you know, the product of Arius, the heretic. But it's a neo form of Arianism, and it's one. Let's put it, let's put it this way: Scholars are out to make a name for themselves. All right, let's just let's just. Go in there. They'll they'll say the most outlandish and craziest and most um, uh, out there uh, theory. They'll get the they'll get the the uh, the attraction of the media. It'll get the attraction of the mainstream news, New York Times, everything, and they'll do um, a documentary, uh, a historical analysis and stuff like that. You'll see them on the History Channel far more than you'll see people who are real believers. And they're the sane ones. They're the obviously sane ones because, and that's, and I want to say this, it's probably the fault of us believers because sometimes... Um, you know, we don't, uh, we don't approach, um, we don't preach the way we're supposed to preach. And we sometimes forget that the media is just out to create ratings, but here's an interesting thing. You can, the, you can flood the market as much as possible with a lot of crazy, Scholarly historical theories. Mark is going to get bored. You know what they're more interested in? They want to see the Christian out there. And the scholar, the scholar, the atheistic scholar, is dependent on the faith of the Christian. All right? The only way they can write and publish things if there's believing Christians. The only way they can discredit, come up with crazy theories, if the believer is still around. If there are no Christians, there's nothing to write about. They'll probably start writing about, you know, almost to the point where it looks like they're looking to have faith in Jesus. That's their faith. Their faith is in the believing Christian so they can write unbelieving stuff. There you have it. I mean, that's that's how I see it. I mean, now that we have the chosen um um tv show it's your prop you know and you're going to see more faith you know that's the thing you need people who believe you need you need christians and the holy spirit is using any channel any media if places like the catholic church are not going to do the job if um you know you're not going to see um evangelization, the way it should be done, faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit will use a TV show. Simple as that. Modern scholarship cannot survive without the Orthodox Christian. Modern scholarship cannot survive, uh, without true Christians. It's useless to write attacks assault, assaulting the Christian faith if there's no Christians around. <laughs> it's, it's a necessity for them. All right, let's move on to study the gospel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and there went out to him all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with the water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, let me read it one more time. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there went out to him all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this is where we're going to start to break up um, the verses here, Uh, the words. The first one we're going to focus on is Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We're going to focus on the beginning. Now, think to yourself, what does it call your mind back to? Beginning. Obviously, uh, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it should call your mind back to the start of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's exactly what it should call your mind back to. Any first century Jewish person, either a Jew in Judea, right? Or a Hellenistic Jew living in Alexandria or even in the Greek lands or even in Rome, right? is, going, is Their mind is going to go, back to the first book of Moses, Genesis, what we call Genesis. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do. Uh, Remember, it is based on uh, St. Peter's preaching, teaching method, his ministry. But it's also my own personal view, possibly based on the apostolic teaching of the apostles our mind should also go back to the Gospel of St. John, which most likely at the time was being written. But let's remember how St. John's Gospel begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. And that's exactly, it, it matches it. Because there seems to be a foundation to how they saw Jesus. John goes directly to the divine uh, origin of Jesus. The lack of a better word. His divine nature, maybe. We, We better say. He's the word. He associates him... He kind of he took Jesus place as the second person and associated him with the Greek alpha, the beginning, but also associated him more directly with the logos, the word. The Greeks believed the word was divine and that was just perfect. and that the word, was the cause of the existence of all things that gives shape, meaning, form, substance to all things, to all creation. And this was perfect. It was perfect for the Jewish religious thought and he was able to mold Greek philosophical thought. And as you can see, Mark, uh, basing his writing on St. Peter's, was doing the same thing. The beginning, the the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He starts off with the beginning, and he he ends it with a divine person. He gives the name to a divine person. Jesus, a title to the divine person. Christ, Christos, Messiah. Right? And he gives also a mission to the divine person. He even puts the mission right before the name of the divine person. Gospel, the good news. Perfect when you look at it. Now, the gospel gospel is a word that's not just found in Greek writing or non-religious writing. It's actually found in the Greek version uh, the subduogen of the Old Testament. We find it mainly also in Isaiah. Good news, good tidings. And this is something that was common in the Mediterranean world. When a king is uh, going to make his presence known or a new king or something wonderful happened related to the superpowers of the world. They would send a herald. Good news. Good news. Uh, a prince is born. Good news. Uh, victory. We won the king. Our king won. Uh, you'll find it among the Greeks, especially in the book of uh, the Odyssey. Um, uh, I came across uh, some footnotes that related to that uh, of Odysseus' return home. Good news. He, you know, the Odysseus is alive. He was a king. And good news, he came back home from um, Troy. Now with the Caesars, of course, good news. Caesar rules. Good news. Everyone has a good life under Caesar. All of mankind is saved under Caesar. Caesar, uh, today is Caesar's birthday. Uh, uh, Today, Rome has won. It carries with it, of course, a, a military political tone to it. But God is taking that and he's applying it to a work that only he can do. Only he can save mankind. Only he can redeem mankind from their sins, liberate them from spiritual death. Now you put what follows after good news in that first sentence is Yeshua, Jesus. God saves. God is savior. Good news. God has sent a savior. Good news, God's Savior is anointed, consecrated, set aside. Back in the Old Testament, right, you would anoint someone with olive oil, pure olive oil. Sometimes it might be mixed with maybe frankincense or myrrh or some other, um, some kind of other form of alloy, a plant alloy that gives a beautiful fragrance and it, this, of course, would set the person aside. The high priest would be anointed. That was also a Messiah figure and a son of God figure, but not in the divine sense. Remember, not in a divine way. This person would be um, consecrated to do God's holy work. And that's true, right? Right. Uh, the high priest is set aside to do work in the temple, right, uh, to help re- uh, redeem the people to serve as a purpose in God's holy place. The king is anointed and set aside for the nation, for the people, for God. Prophets are anointed and set aside. So, in that, in those words, we just discovered three. Offices that that Jesus occupies Prophet, Priest, King. He fulfills all three offices as God's anointed, God's Savior, God Redeemer. And that is the good news is that God has given us a Savior that fulfills all three offices. And he is God the Savior. And then we find out he's Son of God. But that also comes with another title that's behind it, that's not spelled out, Son of Man. That's a divine title. But the Son of Man, we find out, is truly the Son of God. And this is one of the important divine titles. So, John, remember, in his book of Revelation, reveals Jesus. Again, we hear the term Son of Man. After the Gospels, we don't hear it anymore, except maybe by Stephen when he was being stoned. I see the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. Remember, Jesus referred to himself Son of Man. That comes from the book of Daniel, by the way. And that is a divine title. And they knew that. The Jews knew that. The Jews understood that. Their ears were very sensitive to these particular uh, revelations, these particular titles. And Jesus knew that. Um. In his book of Revelation, remember, he associated Jesus as the word of God, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. He also does refer to him as son of man. And he does refer to him as the lamb slain, who also referred to Jesus as this lamb slain. Another divine title was uh, that, uh, that was thrown out to be Jesus' title was the lamb of God. The Lamb of God by John the Baptist. These are things that were all associated. It's behind the Son of God. Once Jesus fully took this divine title, as Son of Man, and revealed, do not deny that he is truly the Son of God. That's pretty much put a target on his back. That's pretty much was a challenge to the authorities in his days. And we see how that was played out. Okay, so let's uh, move on from there. So that was a lot, right, in that first verse, chapter 1, verse 1. And that pretty much uh, shows you how we can do Bible study. We, we, get, good, we get good material good sources, good commentaries. And you could make notes and you could, um, take your time, meditate on it because it's not something that you got to go through. It's not, you have to invest the time and, you know, trust me, what I've done is only scraping, scraping the top, the surface. It's could be a lot more. The thing is, what we just did there was we we pretty much got to know who Jesus is, who he is, and we also got to understand. We got to know the gospel writers. All right, uh, yes, uh, Mark the Saint Mark the Evangelist. but we found out Mark's uh, minis- uh, ministry. Mark. Mark was a protege, a student under the Apostle Simon Peter, the the, the fisherman who was called by our Lord, whose name was Simon, son of Jonah, or Jonah. And the name also, uh, Jonah, uh, can also mean son of the spirit or son of the dove. Okay, and that, That right there shows us uh, names have meanings in ancient Israel, the culture. Um, Now, we figured out that it's based on the divinity of the person of Jesus. Okay, in the beginning. Okay, the beginning, the gospel. And the gospel, good tidings, good news. Good news, God has sent us uh, God, the Savior. God has sent God the Savior. And it, you know, obviously that's what Yeshua means, and then we go to Messiah. Messiah, the Hebrew uh, which is anointed. You see in the book uh in the book of Psalms, chapter one, verse one. I mean, uh, verse, uh, chapter two, actually. God's promise to his anointed. Psalm two. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings, of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast them their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord has has them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying I have set my king on Zion my holy mountain I will take I will tell of of the decree of the Lord he said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel now therefore O kings be wise be warned O rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear with trembling rejoice lest he be angry and you perish in, in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him so you can see how certain passages in scripture pretty much almost spell out who God's anointed is God's anointed is also God's son now that is literal now we know that is Jesus but before in the past Anyone who's anointed is considered God's son, a king or a priest. Usually this time of the time of David is referred to pretty much anyone of the line of David. But you're looking at it from the literal historical perspective. But then you can also look at it from the poetic perspective. And it could also like as, as literature, As literature, God's anointed was celebrated in Jewish literature, but from, again, a theological perspective, at some point in the future, it pointed to a future king. After the the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of the Davidic line, the people were expecting one day God will restore the line of David restore the anointed line. And that became their political future Messiah, like uh, the way we would think of a King Arthur, maybe, right? The line of King Arthur one day will be restored. Well, that's how they pretty much saw it. But when the prophets... um, come along the prophets of course they keep they keep up the dream the hope in the historical minds of the of the jews back then that they would one day israel and the glory of judea will be restored and well the prophecy and revelations would say something different also about the messiah there's the Lamb of God. There's also um, uh, a Messiah that would sacrifice himself. There's also this title of Son of Man, which is a divine title. And it, these things, you can imagine what it did to the imagination of the people. You can imagine what it did to the imagination of the minds of the people back then. And then suddenly Jesus comes along. And with his miracles... They were signs. They weren't just miracles. He didn't do random miracles. He did miracles with meanings to them. The signs and wonders. And the words he spoke, his actions. Also, the miracles set a motion of actions. It it meant something to the people. Which the authorities back then, they pretty much didn't want this challenge. What happened was, it was a political... Uh, uh, advantages. Rome was the one who appointed the high priests. They would look at the roll call of different men. They could decide which one would hold the position of high priest in the temple. And you think Caiaphas and Annas are going to give that up? No. Uh, if Rome left, it would be a bloodbath for them. They're them and their families by the hands of the zealots and people who hate them would want to have them removed. Then you have also the Herodians, the Herods. Now, their position is also protected as long as Rome remains. So you think they're going to leave? No. The Rome controlled the high priesthood. All right? Rome had also the holy vestments. They kept them, Pilate kept them in a chest box. And every single time the ceremonies religious rituals had to be performed during the High Holy Days, Pilate would open it up, hand him over to the High Priest. The High Priest would use him for the ceremony. When the festival was over, had to return him back to the governor. That was the relationship they had and that was not going to be given up. Annas wanted control of the High Priesthood but they were not the legitimate heirs of the high priesthood. They were not of the sons of Aaron. The real son of Aaron was out out in the wilderness. John the Baptist, John son of Zechariah was the real son of Aaron. And soon, of course, after at some point he's gonna be arrested, he's gonna be in a cell, in a dungeon under Herod Antipas. And pretty soon he'll be martyred, because of a young girl dancing to the passions of a of a crazed old man, crazed old king. But the girl was under the directions of her angry mother, because John declared that the marriage was unlawful, and there were other people that probably wanted him dead. Anna and Caiaphas wanted him dead. They wanted no competitor or legitimate son of Aaron to challenge their control of the priesthood so like I said this is how you go through how you do a Bible study you figure out what you're reading and then you begin to be able to, to read between the lines to see how the verses come together to see the coherence and it begins you begin to see a picture a pattern Oh, a bigger uh, emergence of it because we're so far removed from these from these from these uh, literature from centuries it becomes difficult we, we as modern day Christians we we form our own image and that's not good. We have to try to get as close as possible to understanding these people and the times that they lived in. And it could help us get closer to Jesus, to get closer to Jesus Christ. All right. um, We're going to end it here. Okay. And, uh, okay, hold on. Yes. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let me not, O Lord, be puffed up with worldly wisdom, which passes away, grant me that love which never abates, that I may not choose to know anything but Jesus and him crucified, I pray you loving Jesus, that as you have graciously given me to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge, so you would mercifully grant me to attain one day to you, the fountain of all wisdom, and to a Appear forever before your face. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, God bless.